Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 will be our, our study this morning. As you well know, as we started this exposition of this great gospel, Mark has clearly taken us through some events of Christ, and such is the case this morning. I want to read the two verses that encompasses our, our study, and starting in verse 14. The Word of God reads this, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let us pray. Father, again we come to Your Word with a desire to understand it, to be affected by its truth, to to grow in our understanding and delight of who you are as our Lord and our Savior. We desire to get it right when it comes to the gospel, Father. So much monkey business happens. And Father, we just pray that you allow us to grasp a hold of what is true, what is good, what is right, what is holy, and according to your word. Spirit, teach us this morning. Be with your servant. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You might be saying, if we only do two verses at a time, we're never going to get done through the Gospel of Mark. Well, there's a reason for this. <laughs> Nate, you're looking at <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you're not supposed to nod your head in agreement. Um, all that to say... Mark writes in such a way that he gives these little slideshow pictures of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus' life, and, and, he, and he helps us with this. This is one of the reasons why we kind of take a little bit slower pace in this, because even though Mark is, is real quick, I, w- I want us to, to grasp the understanding of all that he is doing. So he continues to give us snapshots of, of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. It is as if Mark being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is giving us, like I say, a slideshow worth of understanding. He's hitting the the high points and highlights Jesus Christ's reason and and His purpose and His coming. And this morning, the PowerPoint picture, it it rests on Christ stepping up to the the podium and declaring the message that He came to deliver. In these two verses, and in particular verse when one verse, you have the substance and the whole of the gospel. 
It will be our joy to to stick to the text and have it describe the gospel that Jesus preaches. But I find it interesting that in a world that has a clear declaration of what the gospel is, often the universal church gets it wrong. Case in point, the pastor of the largest church in America who preaches to over 42,000 people on a weekend says... The gospel is, according to his website, and I quote, Jesus came that we might have a more abundant life. He came to carry our weaknesses, our sicknesses, our our pain, so that we can walk in total freedom, peace, power, and purpose. End quote. That's the gospel? So that you can have the abundant life to have something that is worth more for yourself than in the kingdom of God? Is it all about your best life now? For that matter, the same preacher on national TV some years ago was on the Larry King show. He made no definitive claim that Jesus is the only way to salvation. His common response when prompted by Larry King on national TV is that if Jews and Muslims who don't believe like biblical Christians today would they be emitted from heaven? Well, this well-known pastor's comment response through this litany of questions trying to probe an understanding of what is the gospel, he said this, quote, I don't know. They believe in God and are really good people, end quote. Beloved, I mean, how sad is the state of the church when we don't get the main thing right? How about another so-called pastor in the mega church in Atlanta? This pastor claims that, that Christians should focus on the resurrection and disengage from the scriptures. Doesn't that sound like an oxymoron? This preacher recently preached a sermon series called Aftermath, which he describes this series, and I quote him here, if you were raised on the version of Christianity that relied on the Bible as the foundation of faith, a version that was eventually dismantled by academia or the realities of life, maybe it's time for you to change your mind about Jesus. Maybe it's time for you to consider the version of Christianity that relies on the event of the resurrection of Jesus as its foundation and only foundation. If you gave up your faith because something about the, in the Bible, maybe you gave it up unnecessarily. End quote. In this series, this preacher discredits what he labels a version of Christianity that relies on the holiness and the authority of the Scriptures. How in the world does he even understand the resurrection if he doesn't go to the Scriptures and believe? He appears to be arguing that Christians should not hold to the Bible, but to the resurrection of Jesus, and that's all that matters. Listen, beloved, any Christian leader who questions the reliability and the authority of the Word of God, it needs to be cautioned. If anything, he's a heretic, He's a false teacher. And if he's misguided, that's one thing, right? 
But here he leads a congregation of people to try to understand the, the importance of the gospel. All of that is squishy Christianity that invades the church today. And it reminds me of a story that I read of a person that brings home a point. The story goes about a, a, a person whose mom decides to pull a prank on his son. The young boy was engaged in, in Christianity light. He was doing what he desires to do. He, he only wanted a little bit of Christianity, but a lot of his own self. And so according to the story, the mother cooked him a plate of brownies, which, by the way, was his favorite dessert. As he was excitedly reaching for one, his mom asked, is it okay if I put just a little dog poop on your brownies? His face filled with disgust as he replied, of course not. And of course, as a mom would do, she looks at him straight in the eyes with a serious look and said, do you see now why it's not okay for you to commit what you think is just a little bit of sin in your life? The point hit home. The boy had been justifying some of his sinful behavior by claiming it was just a small area of life. And I get it. I mean, I'm harder on preachers because I'm a preacher myself. It's one of those things where, where if we let go and say, you know what, there's room for Christianity to have kind of a, a softer gospel. Listen, how are people getting saved? As mom's point demonstrates how a little bit of something foul, something distorted, can corrupt something that's pure and holy. This is what these so-called preachers are doing. The Bible is very clear. Listen, beloved, Jesus is very clear on the gospel. And to arrange and distort this truth puts you in a category of a heretic or a false teacher, which doesn't surprise us because we know in the day and age, Jesus warned us about that through the apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter warns us by saying, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Judgment for the teacher who proclaims a different gospel or eliminates the truth of the gospel. If there's one thing that we must get right is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and beloved, it, it's one of those things why it's such a serious issue because the enemy desires to distort this truth. He knows that the, the true gospel saves people and redeems them and brings them in the right relationship with the holy God. We must understand that there's no other ways to heaven. There's only one. There's no back door. Jesus has clearly said that right in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, given to us by Jesus Christ in the word of God, is sufficient to save your soul. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here this morning in these two verses. He's bringing out the important truth that comprises the gospel. And what we clearly notice in these two verses is a method and a message. Pretty simple outline. 
Look at verse 14. We, we, we see the method in which he comes and delivers the gospel. This has always been God's designed way is just to bring a herald, a, a declarer, a preacher. But if you look at verse 14, it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. That Greek word for preaching is caruso in the Greek. It has the idea to proclaim, to announce, to make known. It's the same word used as we saw earlier in verse 4 with John the Baptist. If you look your eyes back there, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching the baptism. There he is proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Mark is clearly marking a connection of the forerunner of John the Baptist with Jesus coming and preaching. Jesus was a preacher. A preacher. And both him and John the Baptist, they, they both preached. Notice it doesn't say entertainer. Notice it didn't say just have a good time. A comedian. He was a herald, a proclaimer of truth. And what's interesting, when I was looking at this word and its use of it, we only find two occasions in the Old Testament. But those two occasions in the Old Testament is connected with the reality of the Old Testament pointing to the coming reign of the Messiah who would preach. Isaiah 61.1 is, is one of those verses, and it says there, The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to, here it is, proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. That's what the Messiah was going to do. The marker is very clear. He's going to preach. And Joel chapter 2, verse 1 is the other one. It's a messianic. It's actually in verse 15 that has this. But I want you to see verse 1, where it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. That was the message of John the Baptist, that prepare your heart, for the Lord is near. And that, that, that Joel chapter 2, that chapter continues to go on, talking about the Messiah as being the one who comes and preaches. And so the use of Caruso in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, points to, or verse 14, excuse me, points to Jesus' proclamation of the gospel of God, that the reign of God foreseen by the prophets has arrived. It is here. And so here comes Jesus. And he's preaching, and he's proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news, that salvation has come. By the way, beloved, when it comes to preaching, I mean, this is probably one of the most oddest things in, in a technological age and day and age where, where you stand for and come and gather and you sit to listen to a preacher preach for 45 or 50 minutes. It's God's design. He desires for us to, to, to hear the word of God. And it's the duty of the preacher to preach the word of God. The word of God is meant to be preached by, by not only God's Messiah, which in turn, after Jesus leaves this earth, he calls men to preach the word. And in so doing, the preacher's content is already set. It's contained in the inspiration of the 66 books of the Bible. 
It is here where the preacher settles his soul, knowing that this is an eternal word inspired by God, spoken through men to be able to transform the lives and make sure that we understand the revelation of God. It is the preacher's obligation to accurately explain what God's word says. And in so doing, hearts are changed. God changes hearts with his word. God uses the role, even of the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Godhead, as the means to drive home his word into his people. Which, by the way, leads to sanctification, leads to growth, leads to being like Christ. God will always have a preacher until he comes again. What Christ's church needs are preachers, beloved, who stick to the text, point to the text, explains the text, proclaims the text, only for us to receive the word of God. It is preaching that convicts and preaching that confirms truth. This is exactly what Jesus did. The greatest preacher that ever walked this earth is Jesus Christ. Preachers need to take heed to his example. Now, I want you to notice something else in verse 14. You notice at the very beginning of this verse, Jesus doesn't begin his public ministry, his public preaching ministry, until John the Baptist is arrested or taken away into custody. Of course, we know in the other Gospels that he was eventually beheaded because he called the king to repentance. But the reason this is significant is that the Jews always understood that there came a prophet and then there was another prophet, succession. A prophet goes off the scene, another prophet comes, goes off the scene, another prophet comes who is the forerunner, goes off the scene, and the Messiah comes. They had no concept of contemporary preachers. They, they, even though there was a little bit of overlap, we understand that this is a passing of baton. Here's the forerunner, John the Baptist, who says and points to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The baton is passed, and the Messiah takes a hold of that baton, and he gets up and he starts preaching. John the Baptist will fade off. In the redemptive timeline of history, and Jesus takes the mantle and takes the stage. And of course, we know, according to the gospel, boy, does he turn the world upside down. Now, the question is, what did Jesus preach? Like I said, this is a a snapshot, a a slideshow, a a, a glimpse of a slide of, of the life of Jesus. And Mark captures this truth simplistically in verse 15, if you look at it, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Statement, followed by two imperatives, repent and believe in the gospel. That's it. The gospel is a declaration that the kingdom of God is here. And Jesus, of course, will give us fuller understanding that he's the one who is going to go and atone, and he is the gospel, and his very presence shows that. It shows his divinity as he goes about and he heals people and points to miracles. But Jesus declares that this critical moment has come. God begins to act into a new and divisive, not a divisive, decisive way. 
He was divisive. Pharisees didn't like him. Sadducees didn't like him. Why? Because he pierced their hearts with truth. But here he comes bringing this promise of ultimate redemption to the point of fulfillment. And this is remarkable. God makes this point in time, this this moment where Jesus steps up and declares that the kingdom of God is at hand and you must what? Repent and believe. It's interesting to me, the gospel is not something just to be known about. It is something to respond to. The imperatives and the gospel, when it is presented, compels the listener to do one of two things, either receive Christ as their Lord and Savior or reject. It causes them to to come to a conclusion. Why? Because that's salvation. This is God's means. This is what he's calling. And if he's saying with the the statement of reality that the kingdom of God is at hand, you've got to understand exactly how do we get into the kingdom. The gospel It compels the listener to respond. Now, in announcing the kingdom of God, and, and, and no doubt you probably have been studying this or are looking at this, or at least have some kind of theological understanding of what the kingdom of God is. There, there's a lot out there to be studied and will be looked at. But what's going on? I think we can simply state this in the simplicity of the kingdom of God is that it comes in the second coming of Christ, right? Where you will have an eternal reign where he will stand in his throne, sit in his throne in his chair and reign for eternity. However, there's also a part of the kingdom of God that when Jesus shows up and sinners repent, that they get a taste of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. We experience that with the blessings of coming to Christ, right? We enjoy the the fact of, of being a part of the kingdom, knowing that Christ is our king. And so when we think about the kingdom of God, we've got to understand that that is the moment where God reigns from on high for eternity, yet through this process, until we get to that point, there's this taste or this appetizer of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Not perfectly, but yet beautifully. We get to experience the joy of fellowship and, and the joy of, of, of being in the spirit and being transformed in the midst of all that is going on. The kingdom of God is distinctive component of redemptive history. It's something that we understand to be God's doing. It belongs to God who comes and invades history in order to secure man's redemption. That's that's the point. What's interesting to me in the Greek, when when you look at this and, and you see the emphasis in the Greek, and of course the Greek often has emphasis, it often puts the emphasis at the very beginning. He points to the fact that the kingdom of God is emphatic here. It is here, it is coming, it is in Jesus Christ. You get the, the instance, it, it, it's God who is doing something who will radically affect the sinner and bring them into the family of God. I mean, John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, had, had centered upon this urgent demand to repent, right? We saw that because God was about to act. The, the, you know, he's coming, and the Messiah is here. And so John's message was to ready the heart to receive the one who's to take away the sins of the world. 
And then Jesus steps up and proclaims the kingdom has drawn near. And his very presence, like I said earlier, points to the reality as we know the fatality or the, the, the fullness of what the gospel is comes into this, this death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord. We know that he is definitely pointing to himself as the good news. And Mark clearly understands this. Jesus' own appearance, which is the event in the redemptive plan of God, has come. All the prophets have, that have prophesied, here is Jesus. Now let's look at his message. The two imperatives. The two imperatives. Exactly what is going on here. It's interesting to me, in verse 15, he says, repent and believe. These are two actions of the convicted sinner of truth that responds to the word of God, who turns from themselves. Repentance is actually metanoia in the Greek. It has the idea of change of mind, but it doesn't mean just turn away from your sin. Listen, the demons even believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, but they do not repent, nor can they. They're angels. They don't have a redemptive soul. Either they're, they're holy and elect or judged and demons. But the reality of that, having just knowledge, repentance has uh, with it a, an idea of faith. And so these two things we saw in the book of Jonah, the whole issue of, of, of repentance and faith going hand in hand, you cannot have one without the other. We must understand repentance and belief go hand in hand. And this is the heart of the message, right? A faithful response to these two imperatives is responding to the gospel that Jesus preached as far as the good news. And you must have both. Faith and repentance run hand in hand in God's great salvation. It is something that we must understand. Just to get somebody to walk an aisle and, and to say that they believe, that's not it. They must repent. When I was visiting Russia, the many times that I've been over there, I love their, their gospel call. And even in their interaction, as you would have fellowship with, with like-minded believers, they're, they're saved. And I would ask them about their testimony, and they're safe, and they would say, I repented 1986, or whatever the case may be. I mean, they grasp the understanding of repentance. They understand that, that it was agreeing with God with, that they are a sinner in need of judgment and they need a Savior. I repented and come to a saving faith and a saving understanding of this great God. Listen, beloved, we don't look to ourselves when it comes to salvation, we don't look to church. We don't look to membership. We look to the Savior, who's the only one that can save and redeem us. And when it comes to faith, it's believing that Jesus is the Messiah. It's believing that he is God. All your Christological understanding of Jesus comes to, to the forefront. That's what you believe, that Jesus is God himself, not somebody who became a God, but he is God in the flesh, 100% man, 100% God displaying his deity and all of his supernatural miracles that he performed. Faith is believing all that Jesus came and did. And the question you've got to ask yourself, do, do I embrace that? Right? 
In my own soul have I turned from my sins and turned to the one who can save me, who can grant forgiveness and grant me mercy. And in turn, I replace my contrite heart with the faith of the one who's imputed his righteousness into me because he died and took the wrath and atoned for my sins. True saving faith is the sinner recognizing his own hopeless condition and trusting Christ as his righteous and sacrificial substitute. As the only means to escape God's wrath. You know, we used to say, you know, hellfire and brimstone type of sermons, those are kind of archaic and not for today. Listen, we need hellfire and brimstone to be gripped with our own souls, that the reality of, of hell, of judgment. We had the joy on the radio just to talk about that very subject, hell. Uh, looking at the reality of, 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 of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal pain. Oh, I think we all embrace, we like the good side, good side of the gospel. We like the idea of heaven. And I've, I've even, you know, I've met a lot of people who, even though they don't believe in God, they like the idea of heaven. But when it comes to hell, they don't like it. Why? Because the holiness and the word of God, it, it, it convicts them to realize that, you know what? According to the standards of the scriptures and this holy God, I have offended everything that he is and deserve hell. Faith and Repentance. This word repentance, like I said earlier, metanoia, it's 31 times in the, in the New Testament. It means uh, repenting or turning from your sin. It has the idea of spotting your sin and recognizing that is an offense against the Holy God and turning from it. It's a change of heart, a change of mind to that which is holy and godly. Paul preached this same message as the baton was handed to him from Christ in Acts 17. Or he says there, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. I mean, the gospel proclamation of the apostle Paul was, it was to point to people the reality that judgment day is coming, the day of judgment is coming. John the Baptist, prepare your hearts. The Lord is near. And what's the response to that? Repentance. Repentance. Oh, it has its identity. You know, sin comes in all different ways, but repentance takes greed and turns it to generosity. Repentance takes a self-centered Christian and makes him self-denying, and serving others. Repentance turns from the, the idols of your own heart to the holiness of the one and true God. I know to let the Spirit into our souls. 
Why do I mean by that? To let him point out the idols of our souls. Listen, if you have something in your heart that is more valuable or more thought-worthy than Jesus, it's an idol. And we must repent. We must turn from ourselves and turn to the only one who can grant us grace, mercy, and forgiveness. When it comes to believe, pistis, uh, it appears 484 times in the New Testament, often more so. It has the idea of, uh, of believing, having faith in. I think it's best to explain as, as, as faith is having knowledge with trust. It knows that Jesus is the Messiah. It knows that Jesus is the only way to reconcile your, your heart to a holy God. And that truth, in turn, changes your life to be transformed to what the truth says. True saving faith is a sinner recognizes his own hopeless condition and trusting Christ as his righteous and only atonement. His only atonement. Repent and believe and you will be saved. Two imperatives, like I said, to, that affects your soul, that drives you to, to not only consider the truth, but to act on the truth. And there might be some of you here this morning where the cobwebs are finally cut loose. And the reality is, is that you know within your soul that you have not repented. Today is your day of salvation, right? Here you've heard the good news of the gospel, this message that is so declarative, and you will see this run throughout the gospel of Mark, this call to repent and believe. Why? Because God's judgment is coming. I think a lot of times we, we don't think that, you know what, we got another day, got another week, got another year. Listen, you and I, Jesus in his earthly life here, didn't even know the hour, the time, or the day of his second coming. But here, the reality is, I don't know about you, but that sobers my Christianity up real quick, doesn't it? It takes off all the, the ornate aspect of Christianity and gets to the heart of what's really true and what is, what is right, what people need to hear. I'm not saying that you don't do that with gentleness. I think you need to. I think you need to call, however, people to repentance. I think you need to, to understand and, and give them the reason why. Because there's a holy God and judgment day is coming. So turn from your sins and believe in Christ. Are the cobwebs shaken from your mind to the reality that you need Christ? You know what to do. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Simple as that, yes, but profound. Profound. And so as we walk away from our text here, the question you've got to ask yourself, have you repented? 
And by the way, when we talk about being justified and being entered into the kingdom of heaven, that's a one-time act that Jesus does when you repent and you believe. For the believer, guess what? Though you have been justified with this receiving of the grace of Christ, you will continue to confess your sins for the sake of shedding our fleshly desires so as to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Is that a process? It is. Jesus justifies. Then he sanctifies. And when our life is done here, guess what happens? He glorifies. Have you confessed? Do you believe? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for the morning. Two powerful verses that have brought our souls to the attention of what the gospel is. Jesus, we don't need anything else but you. You are sufficient in all things. You are the Holy One, the Righteous One, the One who willingly went to the cross to atone and pay the penalty for our sins. You took our sin and you spilt your blood for it. In turn, in this process of salvation and receiving in faith this Christ who has saved us, you impute your righteousness to us. So that when God looks at the Christian with the one who has had a changed heart, the one who has repented and believed, he sees his son's righteousness in the life of that redeemed sinner. Which causes our names to be written in the Lamb's book of life. The grace and mercy of Christ that that's wrapped up into this, this beautiful gospel. Father, compel us to believe. Compel us to repent. Compel us to, to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those who have, Father, as, as they navigate life and they come across people's paths, and Father, may they have the same substance of this gospel that changes people's lives. In love, may we call people to repentance. In love, may we call them to believe in Jesus Christ. And in turn, may our lives be a marked distinction of the changed nature that we have in Jesus Christ. Continue to conform us into your likeness, to be your witness, to be your light. And so we love you. Continue to press upon our hearts, Spirit. We pray that you take your truth and continue to drive it in to our minds and our souls this week. May we continue to be changed for the glory of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us 
on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.